is the World Service of Radio Moscow. I'm Natalia Stefanova with the news, and first the headlines. At a full-scale meeting in Moscow, the Soviet Communist Party Central Committee has approved conclusions made by General Secretary Mikhail Gorbachev and adopted a resolution on reforming secondary and higher education. An international seminar devoted to ways of promoting peace, development... When you listen to Radio Moscow these days, you hear the news rather than the party line. Aside from the world of Soviet officialdom, what changes has Glasnost brought about? As the citizens of the Soviet Union move down the road to perestroika after eras of repression and stagnation, what is their society like socially and culturally? How are they adjusting? In the Soviet Union in recent weeks, we've been listening to music that you would not have heard a decade ago. Alexei Bogdanov is a young Russian whose passion is rock music, a form of music from which the heavy hand of officialdom has now been lifted. But how swiftly has this change in the music scene come about? I don't think that it was just a moment of great change because I would uh, say that rock music was not that uh, officially prohibited but it was regarded as a means of uh, western influence and so they tried to to uh, to make this influence uh, uh, weaker did they see yeah, it as a did they see it as a as a bad influence? Surely, surely, a bad influence because it was the West, it was uh, the uh, uh, ideological enemy, and all these groups, all these hard rock groups, despite the fact that they were against the uh, Vietnam War, or in Vietnam, for instance, which was certainly political plus for them, you know. Uh, but still, they were regarded as Western groups as they were wearing all these clothes and they were long-haired and all everything like that was regarded as a Western style of living, you know. And uh, that's why they tried, tried not to let them go. They tried to, to stop it. But you say the change came about gradually, but surely in, <coughs> four years ago with the arrival of Mr. Gorbachev, it, mm-hmm. it must have been accelerated. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly uh, there was a sort of explosion of all these styles of rock and pop music nowadays. We have everything you can dream of. And heavy metal and 
hard and heavy and pop music of various kinds and everything. William Burdett Coots is a regular visitor to the Soviet Union. He books Soviet performers for festivals in Glasgow and Edinburgh, and he knows the Soviet rock scene. Rock music has come a long way since the days when clandestine tapes were passed around among the young. Now William Burdett Coots is planning to bring a Soviet rock group to Glasgow. I don't know, for example, with this Russian rock group, whether we will get it out or not at the moment. I mean, there are accepted official groups, and then there are the underground groups. And the group that I want to bring was on the underground. I mean, it, it is actually um, it's based in one of the palaces of youth, so I mean, it has a certain amount of official support. But getting uh, up until a year or two, rock wasn't accepted at all. I mean, it was something that they didn't want to recognise. Uh, and it's only in recent times, in fact, that they've taken it on board at all. Um, so, I don't know, it, it's difficult, but times are changing and people are being cooperative, I think. When you talk about the, the rock underground culture, how, how big is it? I think it's enormous, actually. I mean, the, as with anywhere, there is a young group of people that want to listen to music and want to make their own music and they are doing it i mean swarms turn out for where concerts. are they doing it they they do it in palaces of youth they do it in various concert halls around the country i mean the most of these groups appear fairly infrequently but when they do they get a most enormous turnout uh, generally the official groups get more recognition because they are accepted and they they get paid to, to work um, the amateur ones or the underground ones tend not to be, so they do it in their spare time. But uh, it is a thriving, thriving. Um, I think it's a thriving musical scene here. So, so how important is this recognition, and who would give them the recognition? Well, uh, I don't know, there's always levels of recognition here, and it's very bureaucratic, and it's very hard for us to appreciate, I think. But in, in the end, I think it, it normally comes from uh, someone like Goss Concert or from the Ministry of Culture, or from where the people are based. I mean, the group that I'm talking to are based in a palace of youth, so they get recognised through the local consumol, youth consumol, and it's just a youth committee, and because they have that acceptance, it gets passed up the scale. I mean, it's just a sort of bureaucratic hierarchy, really. How did you discover them? So Americans came over here and made a, a video about a lot of uh, rock groups, which I um, happened to get passed by a friend of mine, and I looked at it. And the reason this group intrigued me was that most of the, the music you hear here tends to be um, very 
derivative of Western rock music. I mean, most people want to copy and be as good as a Western rock musician. And there are not that many musicians that are producing their own work with their own lyrics, which uh, are particularly local and, and have their own origins and feeling. And this group, I thought, had that. Um, their music is very interesting. Uh, they stage it in such a way that it is as much a stage presentation as a rock concert. And it's just very witty and very amusing. And it, to see something being treated in that fashion by the Soviet Union is, is very, very good. I think. Have, has any of these groups or have, have any of the, these singers become popular in a, in, a, in a big sense? Oh, yes. There are several musicians here who are cult heroes. I mean, I don't know if you've heard of a group called Aquarium. The guy that leads Aquarium is a cult hero. Um, and there are several others that are extremely well known. Um, yeah, I mean, they, they get pretty great status amongst the young. I mean, you've just got to mention it's happening without advertising it, and you'll get a crowd turning up. There was a rock concert fairly recently in, uh, in Moscow. Um, there were just swarms of people. Now, what about the performers themselves and the groups themselves? Can they become as famous now as, as actors and playwrights and opera singers come in the Soviet Union? Surely. Sometimes they're more, more popular than them, uh, particularly uh, I mean, in the uh, the youngsters, no, the young generation. Who, who is the most popular performer now? The most popular performer, according to the charts, is the group called the Time Machine. In Russian, it's Machina Vremeni. And uh, the most popular singer is Alla Pugacheva, uh, female singer. And the male singer is, if I'm not mistaken, Valery Leontiev. Uh, these are the pop artists, they are not rock artists. And the time machine is not really a real rock music, but they are regarded as rock group. As far as I know, recordings, I mean, there are, there are very few recording studios and the facilities here, I mean, there aren't many facilities. Uh, so, I mean, getting a, a record made and distributed is very difficult. Um, it's not something that happens easily. There are a few musicians who have done very well that have their own studios, but on the whole, the studios are state-run and you stand in line, basically, and it, whether you get through depends on the recognition that you have. I know that you're pretty new to the Soviet Union, but, I mean, uh, talking to people in your business... Do you sense that, that things are changing, that there is an opening up? I think there is a, the long way to go. I mean, I, I came here first a year ago when they were talking about it going to happen. 
um, and it hadn't happened yet. And a certain amount certainly has happened in the last year. And there is work that is going on stage that wouldn't have happened a year ago. And also the way this, the theatres are being run uh, is changing. At the same time, I think for the people in the theatre and people on the street, um, Perestroika has a, a, a long, long way to go. Um, my impression of the system here is that there is a willingness at the top end of the governmental system for it to change. There's a willingness at the bottom in that the public want it to change, but in the middle is a sandwich of conservative thinking, uh, which repre is represented by the bureaucracy, and it's very hard to break through that. And, I mean, you see it in things like the, the cafes. I mean, the, the people are now allowed to create cooperative cafes, but it's not made easy for them to do so. To get a licence to do so, to start with, is difficult. And then you, once you've got your licence, you have to buy the food in a certain place. And, you, you, I mean, this sort of the rigmarole of doing it, it, it makes it extremely difficult for you. So, I mean, you won't find that there are many... Uh, uh, cooperative cafes opening up right now and yet the idea is that they should burgeon as much as anything else so uh, it, things are changing but it's slow um, and I think, uh, I think things are going to have to change a lot faster for it really to accelerate uh, and happen effectively but people want it, the public want it I think their concern is that, uh, that Gorbachev will go, that he'll get ousted and that they'll go back to a repressive system again I think people have too many memories of, of things starting off like this in the past and, and not going anywhere. So there is a good degree of caution in people's minds, I think. I think everybody wants more freedom. Everybody wants the, the basic luxuries that we in the West take entirely for granted. Um, but getting them is another matter. Um, it'll be a long time in the coming, I think. Slow it may be, but you can now listen to rock music in your car radio. You can read Boris Pasternak again, and the country's artists' union, representing 20,000 painters, has held its first congress for some years. It's all a consequence of the social and cultural thaw prompted by Mikhail Gorbachev. It would seem also that the Catholic Church is emerging from the underground. Desmond Rush went to Mass in Russia. I went to Mass on Sunday in the only Catholic church in Leningrad, the Church of Our Lady of Lourdes. And in Moscow, I went to uh, a mass in uh, the only church in Moscow to a Catholic church, the Church of St. Louis. There are two vastly different experiences because in Leningrad it was a sung mass and in Moscow it was what we used to call a low mass. And uh, I left the Leningrad mass about one hour and 45 minutes after it started and sermons were still going on. In Moscow, the whole thing was over in 35 minutes. But in each case, uh, Latin uh, was the language, apart from the scripture readings, which were in Russian. And in each case, seemingly, um, Vatican II hadn't entered in because there were traditional altars and uh, the priests celebrated Mass, which was back to the congregation. And there was no sign at all of any change that has happened since Vatican II. And who was the congregation? Well, the congregation in Leningrad was a very large congregation, really. Every seat in the place was full, and uh, there were a couple of score of people standing. And uh, it was a very broad type of congregation, old people, young people, children, young couples, you know, just as you'd see in Ireland. An enormously devotional congregation, too. It was a very moving experience, that Mass in Leningrad because uh, there was a lot of singing, 
the Russians seem to love singing in whatever church they're in. And after Mass, there was benediction, which was introduced by a hymn, which the congregation sang for about ten minutes. It seemed to go on forever. And after benediction, there was a Eucharistic procession around the church with uh, ladies carrying banners and uh, a statue of Our Lady of Lourdes and the priest carrying the monstrance under a canopy which was carried by four men. And really it was, it was extraordinarily moving because um, the, the, the reverential spirit there was, was quite exceptional. And there was a, a, a young girl, I uh, say she was about 19 or 20, dressed all in white with her face covered with a white veil, walking backwards before the, um, the monstrance, uh, kissing flowers and strewing them. And uh, I, I was very deeply moved by that. The grace with which she did this was quite unbelievable. She could have walked off the stage of the Kirov Ballet. She was so graceful, and uh, the reverence in her movements. Uh, I, I've always remember that. And of course, the singing. The singing was quite, quite quite lovely and beautiful. Now, the Russian Orthodox Church in Moscow, what sort of experience was that? Well, I found it, again, very moving, tremendously reverential. Uh, the music, of course, I, I, I love the music. There were two little choirs there, if you may remember. They were only very, very small, one on each side of the iconostasis, that is the, the, um, the division wall between the sanctuary and the congregation. And those lovely, lovely soprano voices and the glorious bass voices which I never tire of and of course you'd want something wouldn't you, uh, that you wouldn't tire of because the ceremony is so long in fact I spent two hours and 45 minutes in the church of Our Lady of Tikhniv mm. and uh, when I was leaving there was um, a christening just about to start but I couldn't wait for that but uh, in, in, in the Catholic churches there were seats in Leningrad and Moscow. Here, there, there were no seats, and it is a frightful penance on these people, you know, to have to stand during all that amazingly long ceremony. And a lot of the congregation w was mainly composed of older women. Well, I saw uh, old women, I saw young men, and in fact I saw a young mother holding a, a, a child in her arms. I don't know how she did it, you know, for, for so long, but she certainly was there for well over an hour with a child in her arms and uh, yes there were a lot of old women certainly but there was quite a sprinkling of, of young people I saw quite a few young young men there too 
You had, did you not, a, a strange experience in Moscow when a woman in the congregation actually proposed marriage to you? Well, this was, uh, this was after the Mass in, in, um, in the church in Moscow. Uh, this Ukrainian lady, she was 47 year, years old, she told me. Um, when she heard that I was from outside Russia, not the fact that I was from Ireland particularly, she, well, and the fact that I was a journalist, she was very anxious to meet me. And she followed me uh, to the Moscow Art Theatre later on. I don't know how she got in, because you never get into the Moscow Art without having a ticket. Now, she didn't have a ticket, but she got in. And she started telling me her story about uh, men she had met, men who had proposed marriage to her. Her problem was, of course, that she wanted a visa. And uh, a German, Klaus, who had uh, wanted to marry her, who had gone to the Soviet embassy in Berlin, and others who had tried, and she had failed to get a visa. And now she, uh, rather apologetically at the end, she suggested quite timidly that perhaps I would like to marry her. Of course, she says you wouldn't really have to do it, but what she was after was not my handsome features, but uh, an exit visa. The two great dance companies in the Soviet Union are the Bolshoi and the Kirov. The Kirov is based in Leningrad, the Bolshoi in the capital, Moscow. In the West, we're inclined to think of the Bolshoi company as the premier Soviet dance company. But as Carolyn Swift explains, it wasn't the first. No, the Kirov was the first. It was founded, it was the Imperial Ballet School in St. Petersburg, as Leningrad was then known. And it was founded under the Empress Anne in 1730 under the direction of a Frenchman called Landais. And that is why um, the French influence is very, very strong in the Kirov. France was, at that time, the, the capital of the ballet world. And although they had dancers from Sweden and dancers from Italy and so on, Paris was, was the place where it was all happening. And that's really where ballet, as we know it today, started um, at the court, or the 16th century French court. And what about the Bolshoi then? Well, the Bolshoi then was founded in 1773, that's 50 years later, nearly 50 years later, and that had the sort of in Italian influence because Carlo Blasis, who was born in Naples and trained under Novere, now, Noveri, again, was a Frenchman. You see, Italy and France were the two, the two sort of leading forces then. And Noveri was the 18th century Shakespeare of the dance. It was Garrick, when he saw him in London, called him the Shakespeare of the dance. And he was the, 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 one of the most formative influences. He was the first really great man in, in, in dance. But Carlo Blasis, who was an Italian, was his pupil. But he was the early influence there in the Bolshoi. And so there was the sort of Italian strain in, the, in Moscow. 
and the French strain, which was carried on then through Diderot, who was another famous French dancer who was summoned by Emperor Paul I in 1801. And he had studied under Vestris. Now, he was born in Florence, an Italian, who was brought up in Paris from childhood. So all the time there were the two influences, the Italian and the French, and they were very mixed up. He, but so how, how, how long did those influences persist in these two companies? Well, they still, they still persist to some extent. I mean, they're much more mingled today because um, an awful lot of the Bolshoi dancers, at least we consider them Bolshoi, Bolshoi dancers because they came to the West with the Bolshoi, were in fact Kirov trained. Um, Galina Yolanova, the famous ballerina of um, the Bolshoi, was in fact a Kirov dancer. Uh, so was Yuri Grigorovich, who's the present artistic director of the Bolshoi and the choreographer who came to Dublin two years ago with the Bolshoi. And he's Kirov trait, and so is Mikhail Baryshnikov, who's probably best known in Dublin because of his work in films like White Nights and things. But all these people that we really consider Bolshoi dancers, in fact, were Kirov trained. And the Kirov really is the great place academically. It, it, it really is the repository of perfection of technique and it has this flowing lyrical French style. Now, the Bolshoi are, are, are better showmen. They have this Italian strain of sort of acrobatic dancing, and the two combined, of course, are, is absolutely marvellous. And really, um, the Kirov technique, as um, performed by the Bolshoi with all their panache, is probably sort of perhaps more exciting to watch in a way but at the same time, there is a perfection about the Kirov when you see them, particularly in the classics, which is their masterpiece. Their um, artistic director, who is a uh, chap called Oleg Vinogradov, and he probably isn't, again, he doesn't probably have the sort of the showmanship of, of Grigorovich. But certainly academically, if you want to see ballet, you know, technically, for technical perfection, I should think the Kirov probably is the company. How do these two companies now rate in in terms of world standards? Well, I mean, they, they, they are probably... The, the criticism is always made, you see, of, of Soviet ballet, that it got very hung up in sort of... Um, politics, in a sense, in that they were, they were concerned with... Um, uh, presenting the, the new sort of Soviet attitude to things. I mean, the great jokes about sort of dances for tractors and things. And the, the that is all. I think they've that's all well gone d down now. I mean, the, the the ballets they do now, I think, are not concerned particularly with 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 um, you know collective farms and tractors and things. Though they did go through a period of that, but. Um, 
the accusation is, is made that they are not so um, innovative as we are in the West. But they are, they are, cons- they are more and more um, uh, turning away from, from the, the purely academic attitude. Uh, for instance, I saw on television recently a programme done by the Kirov in Leningrad, with, which um, presumably Oleg Vinogradov had set up with, with Maurice Beja, who must be one of the most innovative choreographers in the West. And it, it was quite astounding to see him working. They, sometimes you saw things done by his company, the 20th century company, and sometimes you saw things done by the Kirov and, um, that he had choreographed. And it was quite amazing to see them doing this really sexy stuff, which would not have been at all the kind of stuff they would, be, would have been permitted to do or would have considered doing for years and years. So all that is changing now. You, you see, this is a conflict in, in all countries with national theatres, whether it's a, a national ballet company or something like the, the Comédie Française or indeed the Abbey, how much you, you must preserve and reverence your past and how much you must not get stuck in the past and do purely museum pieces. And the ideal thing is to combine the two to preserve the best of what you've got, but not to get so in a rut that you're, not, uh, that you're out of touch with present-day audiences because people change. And if we saw some of the much-praised productions, whether in ballet or, or straight theatre, that were raved about 100 years ago, we would find them quite risible, you know, because tastes change and attitudes change. Bolshoi is the Russian word for great, Mali the word for small. But when they talk about the Mali theatre in Leningrad, that term is relative. By our standards, the Mali is a large theatre where both opera and ballet are performed. And that was a rehearsal at the Mali for the opera The Naked King by a contemporary Soviet composer. The manager and director of the Mali theatre is Valentin Kuznetsov. Our theatre was founded in 1918. After three months, uh, three months after the Great October Socialist Revolution, it was founded first as an opera theatre. Uh, but along with the operas, they performed here drama as well. Also, musical uh, performances were performed here. And approximately until 1930s, this theatre was used for both opera, drama and musical performances. Uh, But at the same time, in this theatre, there was a small ballet company, but it was not... uh, But this ballet company served opera performances. But in in 1930, a special uh, ballet company was organized. Uh, When the theater was founded, it was founded as a theater of actors. An experimental theater. This theater was founded 
практически новые советские оперы, которые this были написаны. This theater was the first one in this country uh, to put on stage uh, the operas, music composed for those uh, in the 1920s after the revolution. So Soviet, the first Soviet operas were performed here. В нашем театре начинали работать со своими оперными спектаклями Дмитрий Шестакович. Well, in our theater, Дмитрий Шестакович started his work. Его первая опера, самоопера «Нос», his, Катерина uh, Измайлова. His, uh, his first two operas, «Нос» or «The Nose», then Катерина Измайлова was staged in this theater. Были в этом спектакле. Великий экспериментатор, режиссур, Мирхольд the... здесь поставил свою пиковую даму. One of the greatest reformers in the theater, Мирхольд, he uh, directed here his drummer, uh, the Queen of Spades. Здесь свои спектакли «Война и мир» Прокофьев показал. Outstanding composer Прокофьев directed это опера, да? Опера, Опера, «Peace and War and Peace». Он здесь, ее, здесь, в этот театр, Самосуд. вместе с ним Самосуд был у нас главный дирижер, режиссер сам, Смолич. Смолич активно работал. Наш театр получил такое, будем говорить. And they're coming over with a production of Stars in the Morning Sky. Um, at the same time, I'm also trying to negotiate to bring over a local rock group from Leningrad. Um, and then I go on from Leningrad to Tbilisi to look at the uh, Tbilisi Film Actors Studio. Why did you decide that it was the Mali Theatre that you wanted? Um, I visited... Uh, they had a, um, a theatre festival back in October, and they put on a lot of the best work from around the Soviet Union in Moscow uh, over a co course of two weeks. And I saw this production then and liked it enormously. I thought it was extremely good. So we invited it then and we've been discussing since then. And this is really just coming to try and tie up the details at the end. And how important a theatre are they in, in Russia today? I think Mar the Mali Theatre are one of the top theatres. I mean, they are this, one of the state theatres here. Um, they are a major group. I suppose, I mean, in, in terms of scale, there are three or four major companies working in the Soviet Union at the moment, and I would rate them as one of those top four. What sort of work do they do? Is, is, it, is it experimental? Um, it's not experimental in, in the Western sense at all, I don't think. I think their the use of staging is extremely exciting. I mean, they tend to... The, the use of the stage is very good. Um, but, I mean, on the whole, most theatre here is fairly classical and fairly literary orientated, orientated on the whole. Um, there's not the, I mean, there's not the sort of range of doing something like uh, The Great Hunger or doing anything like... I don't know, experimental performance-based art. That hasn't happened here yet. Um, I mean, the interesting thing when you go and look at the, the sort of fringe theatres in Moscow is the fact that they're doing... For them, fringe is doing UNESCO in doing Beckett. It's exploring those unknown texts, which up until a year or two ago they weren't even able to present. So, I mean, there's a whole process of discovery going on on that level. I think also the people here... Um, have a very strong literary tradition, and so they accept that as being the basis of their theatre. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, because I think good literary theatre is, is the best. Um, I think experimentation is important, and I think uh, questioning one's social background is important, but when you come back down to it, the theatre that survives inevitably is normally that classical, literary-orientated one. But how far do you think this opening up, this glasnost, is changing the theatre? 
I think quite a lot is going on stage, which is pretty, um, pretty questioning of the system, actually. I mean, there are things happening now which would never have happened a few years ago, um, even a year ago. So, I mean, there are texts that are being performed which um, are pretty controversial, and indeed Stars in the Morning Sky is one of them. Um, also, recently, there's a performance that's just happened in Moscow um, based on the Treaty of Press Litovsky, which puts people like Bukharin and Trotsky and, and Lenin on stage and, and treats them as real people. I mean, the tradition up till now is if, if you sh- showed anybody on stage of that sort of stature, that they were you know, glorious people. Um, to actually show them as real people with foibles and problems and personal relationships uh, was not a usual occurrence. So, I mean, things are changing. People are definitely questioning more, and the stage is, is one of the areas where those questions are being asked, I think. What about the problems, Bill, of dealing with the, the bureaucrats and the organisers and the administrators in bringing a company like the Mali, for instance, to um, Scotland? Negotiation is very slow here. But at the same time, it's not difficult negotiating with the people here. I mean, they're, they're extremely easy to negotiate with and very friendly. In fact, I think there is a willingness to actually cooperate. I think the problem really is that the machinery has been there for a long time and it is very slow, and they're not used to doing this. So uh, it does take time to, for it to go through all the proper channels. That said, I mean, they, um, everybody here, I have to say, has worked very hard on our behalf to make these things happen. Um, getting the final permission is normally the problem. It's when you get to the top, someone is deciding whether it's actually all right for it to go ahead or not. But uh, nobody said no yet, so I just hang on to every bit of wood I can find. <laughs> William Birded Coots in Leningrad. In Moscow recently, two major events in one week that linked Ireland culturally and commercially with the Soviet Union. One was the arrival of the Abbey Theatre Company to present two Irish plays. The other was the signing at the Aeroflot offices of an agreement between Air Rienta and the Soviet airline for setting up an Air Rienta duty-free shop at Moscow's Sheremetyevo International Airport. One man who was present at both events was Ireland's ambassador to the Soviet Union, Charles Whelan. The, the two events, of course, were in, to a large extent uh, coincidental uh, but it's quite true, we are uh, entering into a, a new era in the sense that uh, contacts are being made at various levels in the uh, cultural field, uh, with this Abbey visit and in other areas also, uh, such as the, um, the trade and uh, tourism and aviation spheres. So um, I think there's every prospect that we will see many more Irish people coming here to the Soviet Union for these various reasons and we're going to have perhaps a rapid increase in the number of Irish in the community here which is very small indeed at the moment Uh, so um, we will be entering into an area or into a position where we will have the same kind of relations perhaps with the Soviet Union in these fields that we have with other countries. Can you see an equal emphasis on trade and on in the arts and culture? Well, I think there are two very different things. Uh, Trade, uh, as far as uh, Ireland is concerned anyway, depends very much upon private enterprise. Although we do have a number of uh, state companies, uh, it's very much a private enterprise matter. And uh, as far as the Soviet Union is concerned, it's very largely uh, a state trading nation, and one uh, which uh, likes to, uh, for reasons of foreign exchange likes to see the bilateral trade in balance 
So um, uh, we can only sell more to the Soviet Union, really, if we buy more, and we really can't buy that much more, uh, being a small nation. Now, to turn to the cultural sphere, uh, I think there the prospects are not so easily quantifiable. For that reason, uh, I think um, uh, individual effort, uh, um, government effort, but above all, the um, contacts between the various uh, theatres and uh, the various other cultural organisations are very important and give promise of, um, of, of rapidly increasing in um, intensity. You are here a relatively short time and you're posting as ambassador, but does this seem to you, as it does to me as a, as a newcomer, to be an, an, an intense degree of cultural activity yes. in this part of the world? Yes, the Soviet Union uh, uh, puts a lot of um, uh, effort into its uh, cultural heritage and uh, the state and uh, various uh, um, city uh, governments um, provide um, um, artistic and other cultural um, exhibitions, theatres, uh, music festivals um, from uh, the state budget. Uh, and they believe in doing this. It is, as you know, tickets uh, to... Uh, for attendance at, uh, at the Bolshoi Ballet and on other occasions are very, very reasonable indeed, equivalent of about three to four pounds in our money. And this is all provided because the Soviet Union believes in this uh, uh, enhancement of the cultural, um, uh, the cultural enjoyment, I suppose, of its people. The visit to Moscow and Leningrad by the Abbey Theatre Company gave Soviet citizens the first opportunity to see Irish actors perform Irish plays. But the Soviets are not entirely unfamiliar with Irish drama. Valentina Ryapolova, for instance, has written a book on the plays of W.B. Yeats and is completing a book on the Abbey Theatre. But has she had an opportunity, before now, of seeing Irish plays performed? Yes, a few. Uh, of course, the Playboy of the Western world is uh, the most popular Irish play, I should think. And Endo uh, Casey, uh, the Dublin trilogy and some other plays. Uh, I saw uh, a few years ago there was the Playboy of the Western world playing at the Pushkin Theatre in Moscow. And many years ago I saw... Juno and the Peacock uh, at the Yamolova Theatre. I don't suppose there were any other uh, productions either of Ocasio or Singh playing in Moscow. Is there an audience for these Irish plays in Moscow and Leningrad? I should think there is, uh, yes. And uh, uh, it's a very... Uh, different kind of plays from not only from the classical Russian plays but also from the traditional kind of uh, European play <laughs> uh, if I can say so uh, it's uh, another world and uh, people are interested in that and also there are uh, a lot of good acting parts in Ocasey um, and Singh Knowing uh, the plays as, as very much dialect plays, O'Casey and Singh, it's very 
hard for us to imagine how they translate into the Russian language. Yes, I'm afraid uh, it's uh, one of the problems because you've got to have uh, a more or less uh, adequate translation of the style. And I'm afraid that hasn't been done by the translators as yet. Uh, And, uh, uh, of course, that uh, leaves... uh, It doesn't give you the... Uh, same impression as in the original, because the poetry, the cadences, the rhythms, uh, these uh, almost Elizabethan uh, phrases, they are lost on the Russian audience. And uh, they are uh, rendered by everyday uh, banal speech sometimes with the Russian peasant dialect, which I think is rather wrong, because it gives you a a different ring. But still, uh, still uh, a lot of the situation, uh, the atmosphere, and of course the uh, life of the characters does come across. The Soviet Union doesn't reveal the excesses of consumerism. It has few advertising hoardings. Its shop windows, such as they are, suggest that the shops couldn't care less about the customers. This is another system, a different ideology. Under Glasnost, however, Westerners may find the experience becoming more acceptable. Desmond Rush paid a return visit to the Museum of Atheism in a former Leningrad cathedral. Yes, that was the Cathedral of Our Lady of Kazan, which... um became the Museum of the History of Religion and Atheism, which is popularly known as the Anti-God Museum. Now, I was there 15 years ago, and there have been very significant and subtle changes in it since then, because some of the more lurid and more, more offensive of the exhibits, which were I saw in 1973, are now gone, uh, which probably says something for the new atmosphere. In fact, outside the... Uh, met, uh, the the underground, the, the metro station uh, near the Cosmos Hotel, I bought, there was a, a small-time entrepreneur selling, uh, quite a few of them were selling stuff from tables, but one guy was selling a calendars of 1988 with a religious theme. Now, that, that wouldn't have happened uh, a few years ago, not at all, no. And you saw in the um, Moscow News that um, the uh, Lenin City Soviet have handed over to the Diocese of Leningrad, that's the Russian Orthodox Diocese of Leningrad, 200 icons which they had confiscated from a big-time art smuggler. Now, those icons certainly, in years by, would have been handed over to museums. And there was also the story of the local Soviet in Yaroslavl to the west on 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 the Volga, which had decided to hand back to the Russian Orthodox Church a monastery which had been seized with thousands of others after the revolution. It is now becoming the first convent in Russia uh, with nuns and also a home for retired priests. I think this is quite remarkable that these two things that Soviet, the, the local councils, should make these decisions now. It's quite remarkable. It is, certainly wouldn't have happened uh, some years ago. This year, in a country in which change has been accelerated through the policy of glasnost, the Russian Orthodox Church will celebrate its millennium. How are the Soviet authorities, though, to face this historic event? 
Well, I think, you see, these two things now which happened last month are perhaps um, uh, tied in with the millennium and that the, the authorities are making noises and doing actions uh, for the millennium. I, I think the handing back of the monastery may not have happened were it not the millennium. But as far as I can see now, there is absolutely no bar, whatever, there's total freedom. There's no, people are not looking over their shoulders as they used to, and you have heard a story of a KGB going to churches and taking the names of everyone that was there and photographing them and all that. Uh, I, that is certainly not happening now. As far as I am concerned, there's total uh, freedom and a, a, a very relaxed atmosphere and of course an extraordinarily devotional atmosphere in, in both the Catholic churches and in the Russian Orthodox Church I've been to.